Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them and how they are involved in their communities. If you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind-the-scenes content about each episode, you can head over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. You sure can. Head over to our <laughs> Patreon, folks. We're going we're, we're gonna to bookend the Patreon until we get enough Patreon subscribers. Patrons? Patrons. Patrons, patrons that we don't have to bookend anymore. Um, <laughs> so I have to say that today's episode... I was super psyched about only because, and I think for both of us, and I'm just going to speak for you here. Uh, I the think League that's okay. Of, right. <laughs> the League of Women Voters has been, I mean, a pretty constant, right? Where I have relied on them uh, forever. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. comes to voter guides. Uh, <laughs> voting for what's this thing that I have no idea what it is. <laughs> Exactly. Like if our philosophy is demystifying kind of all these different spaces, they have been my go-to to to understanding the basic information about like what a person on the ballot or an item on the ballot is about in the most basic, no jargon terms. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and when it comes to voting, you know, you get in there and you think there are, you know, state and national level things and, and, and oftentimes local things that you're aware of. And of course you're going to vote on those, you know, how you're going to vote on those. And then come the judges and come the other the the auditors. I mean, I know I keep making this joke, but now that we've like talked to multiple people who've served in this capacity as County auditor, Seriously, it's so important to know the roles and like the League of Women Voters would have been the place to go to find they, out. Right. They are always my go-to of, oh, oh, shoot. I didn't <laughs> know this was going to be on the ballot. And, 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 and I'm going to tell our listeners a secret, which I guess it's not that secret anymore. My family all come to me and say, you know, how should I vote? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's a lot of pressure. And I know that if I just go to League of Women Voters, that they are going to guide me to information that is um, reliable, uh, that will help me make an informed decision, and that will then, you know, pass along to all of my family members that don't, <laughs> don't want to do the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, information that allows them to vote, uh, you know, in a, in a meaningful and impactful way. But what I love about this episode, though, is that it really helps expand what the League of Women Voters is, right? So they're not just those voter guides, no. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. They're doing so many cool things and have such a interesting history um, that I think it helps us understand why those voter guides are so good, right? Why yeah. they make so much sense and why they're my go-to. You know, I think, and I think that they are probably an organization that's kind of always been there in the background that the people know about. I think they're very well known, right? I mean, they do yeah. have a history of being uh, an organization that you can count on for being 
you know, nonpartisan for mm-hmm. uh, giving you reliable information from which you can, uh, you know, draw your own conclusions. And yet uh, their history is so interesting. And um, the idea that they're still necessary now and that the work they do. A century later. A century later. <laughs> yeah. So impactful, uh, whether that's, you know, partnering with the Girl Scouts to mm-hmm. help young, uh, you know, women understand their place in, uh, in democracy and, and, and the, the rights that are afforded to them and how they can best exercise them to actually taking positions on things that are uh, really, I mean, in my mind, apolitical, such as, you know, uh, structural racism and, and why mm-hmm. have you that uh, they're really such a fundamental organization and, and, and perhaps because they've been there for so long, we've, yeah. we've stopped, uh, I don't know, giving them the, the attention that they deserve. Yeah. And I just want to add one last thing before we turn it over to our guest um, and say that one of my favorite parts about this uh this episode is that it's really, really informative. And we were reflecting on this earlier too, that it's informative, but not at all boring. I feel like as an academic, I sometimes scoff at informative, like anything that is informative, therefore is synonymous with boring. And I don't think this this episode is 100% not that. Yeah, no, I mean, so many things that I'm sure our listeners have heard these terms a million times. And yet, Maybe never taking the time to say, okay, but but really, what is that? And mm-hmm. and this episode does that in a in a really, I think, entertaining and interesting way. So Absolutely. you know, we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Iris Meltzer holds a master's degree in psychology from Western Carolina University and a master's of public health from the Consortium of Eastern Ohio Master's of Public Health Program. She's retired from Akron Children's Hospital after 28 years as the administrator for Adolescent Health Services. Previously, she was a founding member and director of Portage County's first shelter for battered women and their children. She served on the board of the Ohio League of Women Voters, first as secretary and since 2019 um, as its president. Iris currently serves as the vice chair for the Portage County Mental Health and Recovery Board and as a member of the Kent Free Library Foundation Board. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Iris, obviously we just read your bio, but we'd like to know a little bit more about you from you. So, can you tell us and your listeners about yourself? Sure. I guess one of the important things about me is that I'm very political and very politically involved. And I was trying to think of how far back that goes. And I suppose there are certainly political things I did as a young child and just didn't label them as political. But I can remember marching with my parents in the 60s in the small town in Michigan in which I grew up for civil rights. And college, marching against the war in Vietnam. And my adult daughter's, one of her very first memories is marching with me and my mother for um, a right a march for the ERA. So it's just part of my self-definition. 
And I would say with my current role, I've really been able to embrace those that political realm, interestingly enough, in a nonpartisan way. But it's it's been an interesting journey, and I feel like I've landed in the right spot. Now, I wonder if you could just kind of follow up uh, on one word that you used, just there, nonpartisan. I think people probably may not know exactly what that means. Maybe they've even heard it a lot and never thought to ask. <laughs> what is nonpartisan? Sure. Nonpartisan, at least in league lingo, is that we neither support nor endorse any candidate or party. So it's different from bipartisan, which you know would, would imply equal input from Republicans and Democrats or Greens and Libertarians. And it's not that. It's really saying we're very involved politically, but we don't endorse parties or candidates. I love that because one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast is disaggregating political from partisan, like Mm -hmm. pulling those two things apart. And so even starting the conversation in that space is so powerful. But you referenced that um, you've been involved with the League. We talked about it in your bio. And the League of Women Voters was founded in uh, 1920. And the Kent League of Women Voters, which you were also affiliated with, correct, um, was, was formed in 1954. Yes. Beyond kind of, you know, the dates of their founding, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the League of Women Voters and of the organization? Sure. The League of Women Voters was officially founded in Chicago in 1920, just like six months before the 19th Amendment was ratified and women, or at least some women, uh, won the right to vote. And it was formed by suffragists of the National, I got to get this right, National American Woman Suffrage Association. So... It really morphed into the League just before the 19th Amendment was was, um, founded. And the League began as what they call a mighty political experiment uh, designed to help 20 million women carry out their new responsibilities as voters. So initially, the idea was that the League would teach women how to vote. And of course, the how there doesn't mean vote for A or vote for B. It means what are the mechanisms? How do you actually go into a polling place and cast your vote? So the idea was, well, we'll do this and then we won't be needed anymore. (laughs) And of course, that isn't the case. And what the league is best known for um, still is registering and educating voters. So a lot of people think that's all we do, and it certainly is a huge piece of what leagues around the country do, but it's not the only thing we do. So that's the the history in a tiny little nutshell. So I have a quick follow-up, if you don't mind me asking. In super jargony terms, um, (laughs) the League is uh, what some people call a federated organization, right? So it has chapters in state and national. Can you tell us just a tiny little bit about that organizational structure and what that means um, for your work? Yeah. Um, So there are local leagues. There are state leagues. There are 50 state leagues. What a surprise. And there's a League of Women Voters U.S., 
And information and I would say power moves up and down that structure. So local leagues develop positions at the local level, which guide their local work. So with their county commissioners, with their city councils, with their trustees. Um, and those, lo- those positions developed locally, and we can talk more about how that happens later on, but those positions have to be consistent with, but not duplicative of the state positions. State positions are likewise consistent with, but not duplicative of the U.S. And the reason is um, primarily because at the local level, if something were to come up that is addressed in a national or a state position, they can advocate for that at the local level. Similarly, the state can advocate for things at the state level based on our own or their own positions, as well as U.S. positions. And then the U.S. advocates at the national level using the national positions. And the desire for a position can come either from the top down or most usually actually from the bottom up, either the state to the national or the local to the state to the national. Yeah. Okay. So that's really interesting. That was, I was going to have a follow-up question on that is what is the direction of movement on position change, right? Is it from that local entities, in fact, notice problems and Mm -hmm. then that kind of bubbles up? Okay. So I'll give you an example. Every year, local leagues review their local positions And in even years, they review national positions in uneven years like this year. They review the state. So at the local level, one of the local leagues in Ohio said, you know, you updated state, your position on juvenile justice just a few years ago, but you're still using the language of boys and girls. (laughs) which was the language that was used, you know, when the position was initially established. So we changed that. And that, and so we at the state level made that change based on the fact that that really is outdated. And I think we said young people or just people. We might have said young because it's juvenile justice. Um, So that came from a local league with a recommendation to the state. Local leagues will also identify um, areas in which they would like a new position that's statewide. And so if, they, if they request, I mean, they can request a local study at any, you know, annually. And that's just done at the, the local level. But what also happens is they may say, we think we need a statewide position on health equity. And so across the state, a committee was formed, they studied the topic, they got all kinds of materials on health equity, for it, against it, neutral research studies. Out of that created what are called consensus questions. That was the materials, the questions were sent to all of the local leagues, and those that chose to engage in it developed a program, really a 
a way for the local league members to participate in reaching consensus or not on those consensus questions. The, those questions and the responses get sent back to the state, which then formulated a position on health equity. Okay. So now I, I'm, I'm very curious to hear then, I guess, your response on this one. So now, obviously, the League of Women Voters tackles just myriad issues uh, concerning voting. One that's uh, kind of right back on the front burner now, getting a lot of attention, is voting restriction efforts that yeah. are taking place in, what, 43 states? 250 now in 43 states? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Georgia you, passed theirs. Oh, uh, Georgia passed theirs, just shoved it right through, right? Um, uh, so can you talk to us about the league's efforts in, in fighting what is essentially voter suppression? Sure. It'll happen at two levels. It'll happen at the state level in those 44 states individually. So Ohio isn't, going, isn't involved, for example, directly in anything Georgia is doing or Texas or any of the other states. They will have support and guidance from LWVUS. And should there be a lawsuit in any of those states brought, it's brought with the agreement and support of LWVUS. So it may be spearheaded at the state level in which the, the voter suppression is being challenged, but they do it, as I say, with the approval and various levels, kinds of support, probably from national. So an, another one of the uh, areas that the League of Women Voters is engaged in is around money and politics. How does money and politics restrict kind of engagement in government uh, for just the everyday person? What does that look like? And what type of work is the League doing around this area? Sure. Well, one of the way it rest ways it restricts it is by lessening the power of those without huge sums of money that they can give to candidates or politicians in office that we don't know anything about. So Without a federal investigation, for example, we would never have known why and how House Bill 6 in Ohio became law. So we saw it happen, but and we saw some of the terrible things that were happening. I spent a morning with a young man who was trying to collect signatures on a petition to defeat House Bill 6, and watched people, you know, challenge him, threaten him, videotape him, and knew it was horrible, you know, and got the mailings about the Chinese are taking over our, our power grid, and knew it obviously was a lot of money, but we didn't have any idea how that was being done. Uh, now we do, and it was dark money. Lots and lots and lots of dark money. Um, millions, and right? There was millions. Of 61 million. Jeez, yeah. 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 So it, it's like a little light bulb's going off and going, well, that's how they did it. 
So dark money allows things like that to happen, and it allows it to happen, not surprisingly, in the dark, which makes it almost impossible to challenge because you, you don't know where to target your efforts. It's just as if it's coming out of the ether. The League of Women Voters does have a position on money in politics at the national level, which allows us at the state levels and at the local levels to advocate and lobby against the uses of dark money and dark money itself. Now, I think probably uh, tangentially located to this is the issue of uh, redistricting or what is often referred to as gerrymandering. Now, this is another issue that the League of Women Voters has been involved in. Can you talk to us about what gerrymandering is and kind of how, why it's important for the League to get involved with it, how it really distorts our representative democracy? Sure. Well, let me back up a smidge in your question, which is redistricting and gerrymandering are very different things. Good point. Good point. Fair. Redistricting happens every 10 years based on the census, which is why this year is going to be so tough and weird and bizarre. And it's based on the the need to have an approximately equal number of people in each sort of district, congressional, senatorial, state, federal. What happens in gerrymandering, and gerrymandering has been going on since I believe it's the late 1700s, maybe, early 1800s. In Massachusetts, it's it's where we get the term gerrymander because the district looked like a salamander and the person who was pushing its last name was Jerry, so it it became gerrymandering. And I think all of us have seen in our civics or history books the picture of the gerrymander. So gerrymandering is when whatever party is in power works very, very hard to get equal numbers of people in each district, but assures that each district will have the representation desired by the party in power. So if you look at Ohio maps of the districts, you get things like the snake on the lake. You get Jim Jordan's district that looks like a duck. You have districts where one house is cut out of one district and and placed in another district. It's often to to benefit a single individual. Sometimes it's the person in power. Sometimes it's a friend of the the party in power. But you really have districts that want... There's one district, I don't remember in which state, that cuts a house in half. (laughs) So one, the person, you know, I guess it depends on whether where your bedroom is, um, <laughs> unless of course your bedroom is sliced sideways, and then it just depends on which side of the bed you sleep on. So what gerrymandering does is again take away power from the voter and give it to the votee because we don't choose our representatives; they choose us. Right. And again, at the U.S. level, we do have a position on redistricting, which was adopted in 2016 and says responsibility for 
redistricting should be vested in an independent special commission with membership that reflects the diversity of the unit of government, including citizens and so on. So this allows us at the state level and the national level to advocate for fair and transparent redistricting. So as I'm hearing you talk about voter suppression, money in politics, redistricting, but specifically within the context of understanding the history of gerrymandering within that system. So much of the work that you all are engaged in is about power and challenging the unequal distributions of power within these political systems. Absolutely. (laughs) So another project you all are working on is around uh, the Observer Corps, and in what and so maybe this is um, framing this a little bit differently. So one of the things, of course, we want to know a little bit about the Observer Corps. What is it? What is it doing? But I'm wondering how this type of program also kind of challenges and um, reconfigures how everyday people have power within the political system. Absolutely, it does because. Power works best in a negative sense when there is no light shed on what's happening. So there's a reason we call dark money dark money as opposed to hidden money or unequal money. It's money given in the dark and acted upon uh, in the dark and all we see is the end result. So what the Observer Corps does is shine a light on governmental entities and then share that, you know, the findings with, at the very least, their local league members. So again, it's very nonpartisan. League members who are members of the Observer Corps are identified usually with their a button or, you know, their league pin as a league member. They don't speak. They don't ask questions. They don't challenge They just take notes on what's happening and how it's happening. And one of the things it does, as I said, is shine a light on governmental workings, but it also gives leagues a heads up of, you know what, we need to be paying attention to this. This is coming down the pike. What's our position on it? Where are the places that we can intervene, assuming we have a position? And how do we do that? Who are going to be our allies and so on? So how do people, how, how can people get involved with being a part of the Observer Corps? By becoming league members. <laughs> Excellent. I know there's an Observer Corps up in my, in my local league. Yeah. And if you're not sure where your local league is, we're going to provide the links in the show notes to this episode, folks. Yes. So now I, one of the things that, the League of Women Voters doesn't, I, you guys are so committed to uh, really these core values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And one of the groups that uh, I really appreciate that you guys talk to is the Girl Scouts, where you hold <laughs> these events that, uh, where you're teaching them, right, the importance of voting, how to get information, like how to register to vote, like how that whole process works, things that you would think that a lot of times that people should get in school, but maybe don't. 
And I'm wondering if you can discuss kind of efforts similar to this or the, the efforts that you guys engage in in a maybe even a broader fashion that are done with this kind of purpose to create a diverse and equitable organization that uh, really shows how much you um, have appreciation for folks, uh, you know, across different spectrums. Well, I'm not sure whether to start with the Girl Scouts or with <laughs> d- diversity, equity, and inclusion. <laughs> Either one. Um, <laughs> One. Well, the Girl Scout program grew from the Kent League because the, let me see if I've got this right, the husband of one of our members uh, on the board is the treasurer of, that's not quite the right word, but of the Girl Scouts of Northeast Ohio, so this whole region. And he was thinking, because he was aware of what his wife was working on and he's a member himself that there ought to be some way to put the two organizations together. And out of that came voter girl. And of course we haven't been able, we didn't do voter girl this past year um, because of the pandemic and bringing a whole bunch of small children together with (laughs) Adults. Worst idea. <laughs> it didn't seem like the best plan in the world. And while children, I'm sure, do learn something about voting in school, it's very different to read. People go to the polls, you know, the second Tuesday following, yeah. or the first Tuesday following the <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but this gives the, the girls and young women a chance to actually vote. And we are able to bring in a voting booth and make up sample ballots. I think they voted on uh, favorite ice cream, maybe. They did one year. When my kids did it, they voted on ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> the, the program is age appropriate so that the little, the daisies do something very different than the cadets. Uh, and it's, it's a way to get girls and young women civically engaged at a very early age, as well as their parents, you know, particularly their moms, who are usually the accompanying adult to voter girl programs. So that's voter girl. And of course, what that's doing in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, most broadly, is the inclusion of young women. But the DEI is a major thrust of LWVUS, LWVO, Ohio, and the Kent League, which was an early adopter. Uh, We were an early adopter because uh, one of our board members, when this first began bubbling up, was vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Kent State University. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was serendipity. Uh, and she happened to be then become a member of the state board. So the state became an early adopter. But it's been a big thrust at the national level as well, to such an extent that all state and local leagues have the same three initial article, first articles of their bylaws, one, two, and three. So this is the name of the organization. That's kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> and then the second one has, has for years and years and years been a statement on nonpartisanship. This year at the National Convention, they added a second piece to the second article, which is on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So across the country, 
every local and state league will now not just have a nonpartisan statement, but a DEI statement as well. And it's, it really is a matter of saying and doing everything league through a DEI lens. So who's involved in the process? Who's going to be impacted? What are the intended and unintended outcomes? And does this align with our vision for an equitable and inclusive organization? And finally, what changes could be made to make this more equitable? So for me, an example is as president of the state board at our last board meeting, I said, I want to spend some time during the next two years kind of going on in the background of what we do, a review of all of our positions. And they fall broadly into government, the environment, and social social policy, we need to look at every single one of those through a DEI lens. And I suggest we add other lenses as well, including, is this still as updated as it needs to be, you know, i.e. boys and girls to young people? The placing, you know, nonpartisanship and DEI in the Mm -hmm. same article at the top, I think is really powerful. Uh, Casey and I, every time we talk about like what we do with growing democracy, one of the things we say is we're deeply committed to social justice and democracy. Outside of that, um, we're nonpartisan. But we've gotten some pushback in places that a commitment to social justice is perceived as partisan. Could you, does the league get any pushback in that way? (laughs) (laughs) Lots. (laughs) Um, And the explanation I provide, which helps a little more if you could see me, and of course your listeners can't, is that our positions, when they were studied, when they were developed, were typically bipartisan. So our, you know, we need to remember that when the environmental positions were developed, the Environmental Protection Agency was established by Richard Nixon. When abortion first, you know, came into the public eye, it was supported by Republicans and Democrats. So you have our positions, which were developed at a time when the the issue or the topic was supported by people across the political spectrum. Our positions have not changed. The politics has changed. So the the positions stayed firmly right here, just right in the middle. And the politics have moved and moved and moved. So things that once were, well, of course, that doesn't, that's a no-brainer, now look like incredibly left-wing or incredibly right-wing. Typically with the league, it's things now look as though we are partisan in a left-leaning way. Although when we developed them, they were not. I I, w- I want to 
follow up on that a little bit more. So one of the things that I really appreciate actually about the the League of Women Voters on a, well, annual basis, but definitely every two and four years, is that on certain issues, I can go to your guys' website and I can mm-hmm. find links to more information or even summaries of, let's say, that there's some right local effort uh, to, uh, you know, raise taxes or, or what, whatever it is. And I wonder in this kind of, I guess, what are we, post-fact society, <laughs> uh, do you guys often get pushback about that there is, you know, one way to find, you know, facts or that you're just providing factual information as opposed to that people think that that's actually partisan? I think on that, the information piece The League is and has been for a century a trusted source of information. The pushback tends to come around the positions rather than the voters' guides, for example, or the this is what's happening in this area uh, kinds of ways. That makes a lot of sense. So... One of the questions we ask of all of our guests this series, uh, The Power of Political and Civic Engagement, is what does political and civic engagement mean to you, one? And two, what does an engaged populace look like? Well, they all look like me, of course. <laughs> no. <laughs> For me, what it means to be civically and politically engaged is being aware of what's happening around me, however I that particular day decide to define around me, and then looking at what's happening critically, applying my DEI lens to what's happening, and looking at the source of the information. You know, is this a re- reputable source? Um, is the person who's speaking a reputable source? speaker. So for me, that's what it means personally. And I think, you know, I jokingly said it's look like me. Well, we don't all need to be short, gray-haired women. (laughs) But it really means that people are paying attention. People are critically thinking about what they're seeing or hearing in their news. And then saying, is this news source one which I can trust? as opposed to this person said it, so it must be true, or not even looking at the news. I mean, I'm I'm always surprised when I interact with somebody who says, oh, I never watch or listen to the news because it, it, you know, it depresses me or it's all BS or whatever. The quickest way to lose democracy is to ignore it. I love that. And I don't even know if we need to ask the last question, but I'm going to anyway. (laughs) What else is there that you would like to add, especially what are some words of wisdom for our listeners that they can take away from this fantastic conversation? Well, other than joining the league, which is open, by the way, to men as well as women, you don't even need to be a voter because 16-year-olds can be members and clearly they don't vote yet is to be civically engaged, to pay attention, to recognize that what happens at the local, the state, and the national level has an impact on you and yours. And I think sometimes 
it floats. Sometimes people think, oh, well, if it doesn't happen at the national level, it's not going to matter to me. Conversely, oh, if it doesn't happen in my backyard, it doesn't matter to me. It all matters. It all matters a lot. And it might matter in different ways. So pay attention and join the league. (laughs) I like that. Another plug. Join the League of Women Voters, everyone. Thank you so much for coming on with us, Iris. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and my co-host, as always, is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Our podcast is supported by the American Political Science Association and our Patreon patrons. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the show, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag, featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, head over to patreon.com forward slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.